Luke 13, last week we went down as far as verse 30, so this morning we're actually going to pick up in Luke 13, verse 31, and we're just going to finish up the 13th chapter from 31 down through 35. And if you're turned there together with me out of respect for God's word, would you stand as I read our text for Bible study? Luke 13, beginning in verse 31 tells us on that very same day some Pharisees came saying to him that's Jesus get out and depart from here for Herod wants to kill you and he said to them go tell that fox behold I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day I shall be perfected nevertheless I must journey today tomorrow and the day following For it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. But you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. And assuredly I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Father, we lift your word before you this morning. We thank you that you are a God who loves us enough to speak to us, that you're not distant and far away and uninvolved in our lives, but that you are all-powerful and yet, Lord, so personal that you would condescend to speak to each and every one of us here on this planet because of the great love you have for us. And we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's not like any other book, Lord, that you've inspired it by your spirit and it's alive and powerful and it speaks to our lives. So we pray this morning that you would bless your word, that we would each have an ear to hear what you want to say to us. Lord, you know what it takes to prepare each and every one of us in this room. We just ask that you do it now. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would be the one who speaks to our hearts as we study your word. Bless this time, Lord, we ask, believing that's what you want to and will do in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 17 tells us, Do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. When the Bible talks to us about understanding the will of the Lord for our lives, it encourages us, in fact, it exhorts us not to be unwise, but to make sure, it says, that we do understand what the will of the Lord is. And the reason why we need to understand the will of the Lord, pretty obviously, is so that we can follow the will of the Lord. If you don't understand a road map, you're not going to do very well uh, following that to the destination where you need to go. And, and, and God has a plan for each and every one of our lives. So the Bible exhorts us to make sure that we understand the will of the Lord so that we can follow the will of the Lord for our lives. Because as we're in step with the Lord's will, we'll always experience God's best. And not only will we experience God's best, but really we'll avoid a lot of the regrets that many of us on occasion have experienced in our lives on those times that we weren't potentially following the will of the Lord. And I think this passage addresses, we'll see, some of the very issues of those types of things, of making sure we understand the will of the Lord as we see Jesus staying in step with the will of the Father and not being turned off course. And I think even expressing his intention and his will for the house of Israel and how they unfortunately neglected that and suffered the consequences as a result. Now remember as we go into verse 31 this morning, by way of background and context, in our prior verses, Jesus has just been speaking some very, if I can use the term, strong, and I emphasize strong, some very strong things regarding entering the kingdom of God. Jesus has talked in those prior verses there how there will always be, unfortunately, the presence of that which is counterfeit or evil, trying to corrupt that which is genuine among God's people. Remember, he talked about how the kingdom of God is like this large tree, he says, which all types of different birds come and nest in its branches. And one of the important things he told us up front about the kingdom of God, he said, is Tragically, because it has blossomed and grown in this incredibly sized thing, and if we look at the you know, institution of the church today, I mean, it's just a, a massive institution. Jesus forewarned in advance, listen, he said, I'm telling you up front, there will be corruption amidst it. 
It's just a reality. There will be charlatans. There will be religious salesmen. There will be people who basically are wolves in sheep's clothing. There will be corrupt doctrines. There will be false teachers. There will be pseudo-Christian cults trying to pollute and corrupt that which is genuine. And he said, look, you can't be shocked by it, and you shouldn't be swayed by it. You need to find the genuine amidst the counterfeit that's there seeking to corrupt the influences of that which God is really wanting to do. He also talked about how there must come a time in each and every person's life where we must consciously choose to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus said, strive to enter into the narrow gate. And that word strive is to agonize. It means that you and I, like an athlete, agonizes that last stretch to touch the wall that you see the swimmer exert there in the Olympics when they're making sure they want to finish victoriously. The Bible tells us that we don't just drift into the kingdom of God automatically. The Bible says today is the day of salvation, meaning that there is a day of each and every person's salvation. We're not born right with God. The Bible says, Jesus says, we must be born again. Just like we have a day of physical birth, there must come a day of spiritual birth where we choose to finally, in an act of faith, put our trust in Jesus Christ, accept him as our personal savior, and surrender our life over to him as Lord. It's not just something where we just kind of naturally over time sort of just drift in. It doesn't. There must come a day. A critical hour a day when we, understanding the truths of God, make that decision to actually enter into the gate and become a part of the kingdom of God. And Jesus said that happens through one narrow, exclusive way. That gate is the person of Jesus Christ himself. It's through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only exclusive way God has made. That's his terms. People may not like that. They may struggle with that. But the reality is, at the bottom line, he's God. I'm not. <laughs> Who am I to argue with God? I don't like those terms that you're offering. Well, am I going to bargain with God? I mean, is God going to somehow be pushed over because I don't like God's terms? I mean, it's awful gracious that God's even offered terms. I'm the offender in the process. He's God. He created me. He's keeping breath in my lungs and my heart beating. So if God's terms are, there's one narrow exclusive way, and that's through belief in my son Jesus Christ and you coming to him in a personal way, then I at some point must accept those narrow terms and realize that there are realities both of eternal life in the kingdom of God and the realities as well of the torments of hell. And Jesus spoke of both of those things in that last passage and said, look, this is why it's important that you do choose at some point. And the responsibility is on us to make the conscious choice to enter because eternal destination is real. There are the places of you know, eternal life where we will live with the Lord forever. That is a reality. And also, secondarily, there's the only other option, which is hell and a place of eternal torment for those who choose not to go to the kingdom of God. And Jesus said, look, these are real. And the basis of access is through knowing me personally. We need to know Jesus Christ. Again, not have an association with the things of Jesus, but we have to have an actual encounter with Jesus himself. And Jesus said, tragically, there will be many people who will wrongly try to come to God on their own terms or will think if they just kind of hang around the gates of the kingdom of God and have association with the things of Jesus. Remember, he said that there will be many who come and say, Lord, Lord, but we, we sat at your table and we ate with you and you taught in our streets. In other words, we had association with the things of you. We hung around you and we hung around your people and we, we even listened to your teachings. And he's going to say, but I never knew you. In other words, Jesus is going to say, look, it's not enough to just have association with the things of me. There needs to be a genuine, sincere encounter between you and me. And tragically, Jesus said, there will be some on that day who will be shocked to discover that God doesn't make special exceptions for them. That they themselves, like everybody else, needed to come to that place where they made that decision. And so important, we talked about that last week, and I just exhort and encourage you again to recognize that is an essential thing. Has that ever happened in your life? I'm not talking about associating with the things of Jesus. I'm talking about have you ever personally had a genuine encounter with Jesus Christ? Does he know you and do you know him because you've made a commitment to him and therefore you have an ongoing relationship with him? As I said last week, 
I know things about Billy Graham. I've been associated with the things of Billy Graham's ministry, but I don't know Billy Graham personally. I know my wife personally because we've made a commitment and we have a genuine and intimate relationship. And that's so important in regards to Jesus Christ as well. Now, understand, as the religious leaders, the Pharisees, who we see in verse 31 now come and address Jesus, are hearing these things that Jesus is saying, very strong things. Very shocking things. He wasn't mincing words. He was speaking things in a rather bold manner. No doubt, it's evident this was insulting their pride because they had their own religious ideas and convictions of what they had determined was right and wrong from their traditions that they were brought up with. And this was challenging them. It wasn't what they wanted to believe and it confronted the error in their thinking and it caused them to have to face spiritual truth and decide what are you going to do? Are you going to go with what you thought was right or are you going to go with what the Son of God is saying is right and really is the truth? So this is convicting them. It's insulting their pride. And now in verse 31, it says on that very same day, and that's why I give that backdrop, on the same day Jesus said these things while they're fresh, that very same day some of the Pharisees came to Jesus saying to him, get out and depart from here. Notice, for Herod wants to kill you. Now remember, we've talked about the Pharisees before. This is a religious group in that day in Israel who were very strongly opposed to Jesus and his public ministry during his time on earth. So this is not the Pharisees suddenly having a tender heart and beginning to have concern about Jesus' welfare. That's not what's taking place here. They were opposed to Jesus until the day that he went to the cross. So this isn't them suddenly being concerned for his welfare. Instead, this is them looking for, unfortunately, just another opportunity to persuade Jesus off track or to push Jesus off course for their own underlying reasons, perhaps, maybe, because they just wanted to silence his voice because what he was saying was really convicting them. And every time he opened their mouth, it was like a sword was pricking their conscience. And, and, and you know what it's like. If, if the presence or the testimony of something that keeps convicting you and pricking your conscience, many times people, if they don't want to respond to it, what do they want to do? They want to rid themselves of it. They want to get away from that. It's like being in a dark room and somebody turning the lights on. You're like, ah, oh, shut that out. Just turn that back off. And in the same way, maybe they're trying to just get rid of Jesus so that what he was saying wouldn't continue to bring conviction and challenge them. Or perhaps they want to push him back, it seems, to Jerusalem because there they could just keep a better eye on him. And there they could potentially, ultimately, do what they could to try and foil his ministry. Whatever the case, they use here what appears to be a legitimate threat from a political leader in that day, Herod, who probably, no doubt, wanted Jesus to be driven away or at least pushed out of the area of Galilee and send him back down south to Jerusalem. The Herod that's mentioned here is Herod Antipas, uh, son of Herod the Great. And Herod Antipas was a tetrarch who ruled over the Galilee area. And he had already, remember, beheaded John the Baptist because of his bold prophetic ministry. Remember, John the Baptist, on one occasion, confronted the moral failure in Herod's life because he was involved in an adulterous relationship. And John the Baptist just honestly confronted that sin in this political leader's life. And as a result of that, the royal family had John the Baptist executed. They took off John's head. And Herod, we know, was already struggling with a guilty conscience over what he knew he had done to this genuine man of God by executing him and taking his life. And now the presence of Jesus and his ministry around Israel is no doubt just inflaming that guilty conscience within him. And no doubt he wanted to rid Jesus from his territory as well. So either a legitimate threat or a rumor now starts due to Herod's political disapproval of this genuine man of God... Nothing new under the sun. Isn't that shocking? Can you imagine political disapproval of a genuine man of God who's actually just speaking the truth in public? And now Herod's disapproval of Jesus creates either, again, it's either a legitimate threat or it's just a rumor that gets started because people are aware of the disapproval. But the Pharisees now grab hold of this and they use it as ammunition against Jesus by coming to him publicly the same day he's saying those things and say, hey, Get out. You need to depart from here because, listen, Herod wants to kill you. 
Herod wants to take your life. Now, as a man, here we see Jesus being confronted with and pressured to step outside of the will of God for his own life. As this threat comes, to most people, this would clearly seem to be a substantial reason and a legitimate cause to be fearful and to react accordingly. Herod had political clout and lots of power behind his position. Herod had already killed other people, John the Baptist being one of them not too long ago. So this death threat clearly could be interpreted as very legitimate and it was intended to strongly intimidate Jesus. To make him depart from that area in fearful response of self-preservation. Now remember, Jesus said in the Gospels, I only do those things that the Father shows me. I only do those things that the Father says to me. And now here we find a test or a temptation for Jesus to be driven by circumstances and to be directed really by the strong words of influential men. And the Bible tells us that Jesus, during his time as a man, was tempted in all points, in all ways, exactly as you and I are. That as a man living in flesh, God living in human flesh, one of the things that he did when he came to this earth is he experienced temptation in every form that you and I do as well. So Jesus always understands everything that we go through. Now, he was victorious over sin. He never fell. He never stumbled like we did. But he experienced every temptation. And this was an occasion, no doubt, to see if Jesus would be pressured or if he could be persuaded to step outside of the Father's will for his life and to pursue his own path instead. Or if he would act according to what others were saying and follow their words and the pressure that he was under. And to an extent, can I just say, we will all experience similar temptation in all of our lives as well. Every single one of us on occasion will be pressured to step outside of God's will for our lives. There will come times and there will be situations where there will be the temptation and the pressure for us to be driven away by fears of things that we're facing that could tempt us to step outside of God's will for our lives because we're afraid of something or we're confronting something. When God has clearly marked out a path for us to pursue and a course that he has set for us, you can absolutely guarantee there will be periodic obstacles of opposition that arise seeking to get you to take exit ramps. You might as well just plan on it. It's just a part of the process. As you seek to walk in the paths that God has set for you and follow the course that the Lord's will is for you, there will be occasions, there will be situations where there will be that great temptation to take an exit ramp, to detour off path, and to go off course from what God's will is. You're going to be confronted with things that are going to make you afraid and intimidated. You're going to find at times that you're pressured and persuaded by the words of other people. People are going to say things that run in direct opposition and contradiction to what you know you should do and the course you should stay on. And, and people may say things that insult you. People may say things that, that humiliate you, that make you want to second-guess yourself or cause doubt. People may say things to, to threaten or make you fearful. I mean, what, I mean, that's foolish. If you do that or you know, if, if you keep that up, then it's going to be a part of the process. There's going to constantly be temptations. I look at many times in my own life when I faced things and I've experienced temptations just like you to step outside of God's known will for my life. You know, I think of occasions, remember one occasion years ago when we lived in New Jersey here before we went to York, Pennsylvania to pastor the Calvary Chapel out there in 1999. So sometime in the mid to early 90s, I was working for a company and uh, they had promoted me and I was uh, then became a part of the inside management there. And I was you know, very young at the time and the general manager had really continued to give me more and more opportunity. And an occasion arose for a glass company I was working for where a customer brought in their piece of glass. And it was always a situation where if somebody brought in their property, we weren't giving them a new, new piece, but it was their property, and they want us to make some modifications, it was always a no guarantee, no responsibility because it belonged to them. So if it broke in the midst of working on it, uh, we didn't take responsibility. It was just a genuine loss, and we told them that up front. 
So this customer brought in their piece and we were going to work on it. And while it was on one of the back racks, a couple of the employees back there were just joking around. And before it even got worked on, somebody bumped a rack and the thing fell over and it broke on the concrete floor. Well, that's a little different than working on their property and it not, you know, uh, you know, getting broken in the process. That was negligence on our part because employees weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing. Well, my general manager called me in his office. He said, look, I want you to just call them up. Tell them that when we started working on it, it broke. Just tell them that when we were modifying it, it broke. It happens. And they already signed the no responsibility thing. And just tell them, tell them that's what happened. And I walked back out of his office and the Spirit of God was just convicting my heart and saying, that's a lie. You can't do that. That's, that, that. You can't do that. And I struggled. I remember for about a good half hour there at my desk and I was wrestling with it. And eventually I mustered up the courage by the grace of God and I walked back into my general manager's office and, and I said to him, listen, I've always observed and done everything you've asked me to do. I respect your authority. I will always obey anything you ask me to do, except if you're asking me to do something that violates what God has told me to do. And you have asked me to lie, and I can't do that. And I said, if that means that you need to fire me on the spot right now, I fully understand that. You can take my job away for disobeying you, but I cannot do what you asked me to do. It's a lie, and it is disobedient to God, and I won't do that. And I was shaken in my boots when I told him that. Because I was intimidated. He, I was very pressured to step out. As a, I think my wife was at home with a little one. I was the only source of income. And it wasn't a whole lot of income at the time. <laughs> and I'm, this is crazy, man. I could lose my job. And I don't have a whole lot behind me to get another one. But you know what? When we obey the Lord on those occasions, God honors that. And I didn't lose my job. In fact, that boss just looked at me and he said, you are absolutely insane. Get out of my office. And he called somebody else and said, call them and lie. <laughs> but God honored it. But I, I was genuinely intimidated. I was contemplating. Man, should I? I mean, it's not really my lie. It's what he's saying. And, and I had to come to... And there will be times like that where we will be pressured, where, where that constraint will be upon us. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? I remember one time when I was about 19 years old, I was Calvary Chapel of Vineland here, and they called in, and somebody from an RV club wanted us to go and do a church service. I think it was at Buena Vista Campground. And they called the church, and they said, do you have anybody who you can send out here to do a church service? We're having a, an RV you know, thing here, and there's all kinds of RVs all around the campground, and we, we just we want a church service. So they asked around. Nobody wanted to do it. And at that time, I was 19. I had been saved for just about a year and a half or so. And I was like Mikey. Give it to Mikey. He'll do anything. You know? So the pastor called me and he said, look, can you go up there? Can you do a church service for him? Bring somebody to do worship and, and, and do a teaching. So I said, great. So I remember I showed up at the campground. I met this designated guy that I was supposed to meet. And I, as I walked up to him, I met him. I introduced myself. He went over, okay, this is where you're going to be at. And they're going to do some music. And when they're done... That's where you go. Go up there and stand and do your teaching. And then he grabbed my arm and he pulled me aside and he said, look at me, young man. When you get up there, don't get holy and start saying a bunch of things about God. What? He's like, what did I come here for? You know? Look, we're going to confront those times where the words of men and the situations we face are going to tempt us. What do we do in those times? It's a genuine temptation. We're all going to experience that in our lives. And these are temptations to seek to make us to react or respond wrongly instead of walking in faith and remaining faithful. Perhaps this morning, I don't know, you're facing some fearful things in your life right now. The question is, what are you going to do in the situation? What are you going to do? Are you going to let the fears make you become unfaithful? Are you going to let the threats and the concerns of what the outcome could be make you be driven off from challenging, driven off from following and obeying God's will for your life? It's a difficult thing. We'll all face that time when we're persuaded to act in a certain way, maybe in a way that we know that we shouldn't. But, oh my goodness, if I don't, then what will all the other students think about me? Well, if I tell them that this is who I genuinely am or I'm not going to get involved, man, the, the, the pressure of what oh, all the other students think about me. And there's going to be that pressure, that fear to step outside of God's will for your life. You're going to face that. Well, the wonderful thing is this. Jesus is our example 
And watch how Jesus responds in this passage. As Jesus is under the same temptation, verse 32 says that he said to them, Go tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day, and I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must journey today and tomorrow and the following day, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. Notice here as Jesus is tempted to step outside of God's will that you see Jesus faithfully remaining committed to heaven's course and to heaven's timetable for his life on earth. Here they're using Herod's clout and his influential position to really kind of put the pressure on Jesus as a public figure. Hey, you better depart from here because Herod, well, this isn't just some guy on the street that don't like you. Herod, the Tetrarch, he's got a death threat on your life, man. And no doubt they are thinking this will indeed cause fear and get him to go away. But the truth of the matter is Jesus was impressed with no man. And Jesus was intimidated by no man. And because of that, though Jesus is very loving and respectful, he also was very honest in his communication. And he spoke things like they were. And you take notice of that, that he didn't mince words or apologize for the truth. His answer to a death threat from Herod is verse 32 Go and tell that fox. Now, when Jesus said that, there must have been a gasp among those who were there. Whoa! Did he just really say that out loud in public? Did he just use that term to talk about Herod the Tetrarch in front of all these other people? Isn't he afraid? Isn't he intimidated by Herod and the rank and the position that Herod has? And listen, I don't think that Jesus was trying to be disrespectful towards a person in authority. I think he was simply just being direct and he was being descriptive. And he was just honestly speaking what was a factual reality regarding the character and the behavior of this particular man. You know, we know from Josephus and other historians that this is really what the character of Herod was like. What are foxes known for? Foxes are typically known for being sneaky and cunning and they prey on smaller creatures and historians tell us this is exactly what the personality and the lifestyle of Herod was like. It just seems that Jesus, if no one else did, Jesus had the courage to just call it like it was and to say what was true when the opportunity presented itself about this particular individual. And Jesus demonstrates, I think, a healthy example of not being overly impressed or intimidated really with seemingly important people. Because when we have an inflated view of people, it often tends, does it not, let's just be real, it tends to influence the way that we act and the way that we behave. You know, when you're around somebody that you know is a high roller or the powerful person, whether it's in business or whether it's somebody that's a you know seeming celebrity or just somebody that has some kind of clout or maybe just the person that everybody kind of looks up to or the, the popular person in school, it always has a very strong tendency to influence how we act. We kind of act different. Maybe we might talk different because we're responding to who they are. And, and listen, we should not be swayed by what we say and how we act just because of the presence of another human being. I'm not saying we should ever be disrespectful. What I'm saying is that we should never reverence a person to the degree that it affects the way that we behave, that we behave differently. Or we talk differently just because of who they are. The Bible tells us that we shouldn't be intimidated by other men. It says the fear of man, Proverbs 29, the fear of man is a snare, but whoever trusts the Lord is safe. The Bible says that when we start to fear men, that becomes a snare in our lives because we start acting the way that we shouldn't. We behave among the other students in a way that's not appropriate. Or we conduct ourselves in the office because we, we, we are concerned about, well, what might happen if we don't or we stand for this or we don't get involved in that. And it affects the way that we behave. And the Bible says that's a snare. And notice Jesus does not become tripped up. He doesn't detour from fulfilling the will of God because his confidence was in the Father. And that was who Jesus himself wanted to please. So he expresses here his intention to remain committed to the Father regarding heaven's plan because he knew why he had come to earth. That's why he says, look, tell that fox, I'm going to cast out demons and keep performing cures today and tomorrow and the third day until I'm perfected. 
In other words, Jesus knew that he had come here to go about doing good and to heal those who were struggling with diseases and demons. And therefore, Jesus says, despite who's seeking to pressure or make me depart off course, I'm going to continue to cast out demons. I'm going to continue to cure people today and tomorrow. I came to help people. I'm called to minister to people. And so I'm going to keep doing exactly what the God intended purpose is for my life. I plan to continue, Jesus says, today and tomorrow remaining faithful. He says, I must journey. He says, verse 33, I must journey today and tomorrow and the day following. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. Jesus knew what the ultimate destiny of his life was. It's to die for the sins of the world. That's why in Luke chapter 9, Jesus said the Son of Man must suffer many things and he must be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and killed and raised the third day. And Jesus knew all that would culminate in Jerusalem. Now that is where it would ultimately take place. That's why in Luke 9.51, it says it came to pass when the time had come for him to receive up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. See, for all of that to happen in Jerusalem was the will of God. It was the plan of the Father. It was the purpose of heaven for all of that to culminate in Jerusalem. And Jesus was committed to stay on course with that and to fulfill that. He was committed to doing whatever it took to fulfill the purposes of the Father. And in a sense, that course for Jesus' life was set and nothing could alter that. Nothing would make him deviate from that. He was committed to that in his life. And in a sense, you could say Jesus was somewhat indestructible until he got to Jerusalem and accomplished what the Father's plan was for him. That was the purpose for all of his life. That was the course that was set. And to an extent, again, and to an extent in our lives, we all have a set course to fulfill here on this earth. Psalm 139 tells us that all of our days were written or recorded in God's book before one of them ever began. When we were conceived in our mother's womb, at that moment the record was written and all of our days were recorded in God's book before one day of our life ever began outside the womb. Now, that is an incredible reality. That means something this morning, and hear me. That means that your life has tremendous value on this earth. Your life has tremendous importance. You exist for an important purpose on this earth. And God wants you to know that. You are on this earth for a reason. You have value, you have purpose, and you are here for an express purpose on this planet. And don't ever let anyone make you think any different. And don't ever devalue the importance of your own life. You have a tremendous value to God. You have a very real purpose and God has a plan for your life. And when we embrace Jesus, we just enter into the further start of a race spiritually that's been set for us to run. A course for us to pursue. And we must be determined to stay on path despite the pressures to take the exit ramps to go off course. Listen to the words of Paul the Apostle in Acts 20 as he expresses that reality. Acts 20, Paul says this, And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, Except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city saying that chains and tribulations await me. Now that sounds exciting, doesn't it? I know God's leading me to go to Jerusalem. And I don't know what's going to happen, but the Holy Spirit keeps prompting me and saying, Paul, here's part of what's ahead. Chains, tribulations, problems. But that's the course I have for you. And I want you to stay on that course. Paul says this, but none of these things move me. Nor do I count my life dear to myself that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. See, Paul said, look, I, I see what I'm starting to face. But he says, I'm not going to let these things move me. And he says, I'm determined to finish my race and fulfill my course. This morning, can I ask you, do you know what your course is? What's your course? God's got a course for you. If not, you should discover what that race the Lord wants you to run is. What is the course God has for you? What's the thing that he has intended for you to fulfill? And then the question becomes this. How well are you doing staying on track? Are you staying on track this morning? Or is something moving you off course spiritually? Or is someone moving you off course spiritually? 
Don't let that temptation overcome you. The goal is to fight through that and stay determined to finish well. Paul said to 2 Timothy 4, 7, he said, I have fought the good fight and finished the race and I have kept the faith. That's what we want to say at the end. I've finished the race. Note also that Jesus, not just committed to the course of heaven, but also he seems to be very interested in staying in step with heaven's timetable. You notice as Jesus is speaking here for emphasis, he says, I must keep journeying. And then he uses repetitive terms saying, I must do this, he says, today and tomorrow. And I won't be perfected, he says, until the third day. And that idea there, the word perfected, means to be finished or brought to completion. Other translations render that same verse, on the third day my work will be finished or I will reach my goal. And the idea of the third day refers to that designated day, that appointed day. In other words, Jesus is expressing here and indicating by figure of speech that he would not rush what God intended to happen for his life. Did all these events culminate in three days literally? No, of course we know that they didn't. He's using a figure of speech to indicate that things could not be rushed or happen before their time. There was an appointed day, a designated day. And because of that, Jesus would remain in step with God's timetable. And he's emphasizing how things could not happen sooner or later than God's appointed hour and day on God's calendar and God's timetable. And so often we see Jesus being sensitive to the Father's timing. When pushed by people to act, Jesus would say things like, My time has not yet come. Well, Jesus, you need to do this. And, you ought to, and he'd say, My time has not yet come. You may operate on your own timetable, but Jesus, I operate on God's timetable. And my time hasn't come. I'm not going to do that prematurely. And then in John 17, Jesus ultimately prays, Father, the hour has come. Always in step with the Father's timetable. And as the Spirit of Jesus lives in us as Christians, I think we should desire and seek to stay in step with God's timetable as well. Not being pressured or persuaded to get ahead of God's timing, to move forward too quickly with His plans. The Bible often speaks about the appointed time or the set time. And God has appointed and set times. So for whatever reasons or temptations you face, whether it's something threatening you and making you afraid so you got to try and make it happen sooner because you're scared if you don't, you're going to lose the opportunity or you're scared. Well, hey, if, if you don't take this opportunity, another one may never come. And that fear of you got to act now and, and you have to do this and you know, get into this relationship where you got to take this opportunity or you got to purchase this thing. And if you don't, you may miss the opportunity. Don't let that pressure you. Don't ever let anything pressure you to be swayed to try and make something happen if it's not God's time. Stay in step with God's timetable. Walk by faith. It's a common temptation to be pressured to try and push things ahead of God's timetable. But it's a temptation many a times that gets us out of step with God's plan and gets us off track rather than staying in tune with what he's doing. So be patient. Walk in faith. Jesus overcame it victoriously and ask him to help. The Bible says that if we go to him because he was tempted in all points like us, he can aid those who are tempted and give us grace to help in time of need. Well, as Jesus speaks of arriving at Jerusalem for these events to happen, he's now noticed prompted as he's thinking about Jerusalem, representative of the nation of Israel, to express his intentions towards them and their response. Verse 34, he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The one, he says, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, he says, as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. So Jesus, with a heavy heart now, thinking about his intentions towards the people of Israel as he talks about Jerusalem, with a heavy heart of grief, he expresses how they had noticed, verse 34, repeatedly rejected God's efforts to reach out to them. And how they had also repeatedly refused Jesus' efforts to lovingly care for them and to connect with them as his people. Throughout hundreds of years of history, Jesus references how God had, through hundreds of years, repeatedly sent prophets to them, trying to speak the word of God to them trying to tell them the heart of God for their lives so that they would have the benefit of living a life according to God's plan. And instead of responding to God or listening to God's voice, instead they severely mistreated God's messengers and they sought to rid themselves 
of the reality of what God was really trying to say to them. And people do that. God tries to talk to them. He tries to talk to them. He tries to talk to them. And, and, and tragically, they as a nation, look what they became known for. Jesus said they became known as those who kill the prophets and stone all those who were sent to them. That's what they became known for. Now, when Jesus came to earth as God in human flesh, one would think, after hundreds of years of rejection, that he'd be pretty severe in his desire to just want to really discipline and judge the nation of Israel. But yet, look what Jesus expresses. He says, how often I wanted to blast you off the planet. That's not what he says. He says, how often I wanted to gather you together. He says, just like a mother hen would gather her brood under her wings, he says, but you weren't willing. In other words, Jesus expresses there how he wanted so desperately to care for them and to love them and to embrace them. He didn't want to drop the hammer down on them. He describes how like a mother hen who would gather her brood under her wings if there was a dangerous predator nearby or a storm that was impending, that mother hen would make a noise and draw those little you know, uh, you know, children underneath her wing for refuge from anything hurtful. And the reason why is because she loves them deeply and she wanted what was best for them. So she wanted to draw them close to her to do what was best for them. And Jesus is picturing, he says, look, this is what my heart was like towards you. My heart for you of love and concern, he says, despite how rebellious you had been and how many times you rejected the Father when we've reached out to you, he says, over the years, he's expressing the intentions of his heart. He says, I've always wanted to just draw you close to me. That's all this has ever been. I've only wanted to just draw you close to me because I have your best intentions in mind. I just don't want anything to harm you. I don't want anything to hurt you, Jesus says. I just want to provide what's best. But look at verse 34. Jesus says those words, but you were not willing. He says, but you were not willing. Even as they rejected God for many years through the prophets, sadly, they exercised their free will when Jesus came. And they resisted Jesus, and they rejected his gracious offer as well. And you know what? All of us, we can all reject the Lord's best intentions in our lives through unwillingness. Through unwillingness, we can all reject the Lord's best intentions for our own lives because God has given us a free will, and he will not violate our free will. He will allow us to choose and let us respond. And the unbeliever can reject God's eternal offer of salvation repeatedly presented to them for one reason. They're not willing. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ in a personal way, you've never been saved and, and born again, you may have heard the gospel 50 times. And you can hear it and hear it and you understand it. You could regurgitate it and preach it back better than anyone else that presented to you. But you can choose to reject the Lord's intentions for your life to have your sins forgiven and the assurance of going to heaven when you die for one reason. Because you're not willing. You're not willing to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior and you're not willing to repent of your sin and turn your life over to Him and let Him be Lord of your life. And that breaks the heart of Jesus. And Jesus says, man, what I want to do for you, but you're unwilling. You're not willing to let me save you. And even as Christians, after we know the Lord, the Lord has intentions and plans for our lives. And sometimes we can reject the Lord's best intentions simply because we're just unwilling. This morning, I would just challenge you. What is the Lord wanting to do for you and in your life today? Could it be that the only thing that's hindering him is that you are not willing to allow him to do it? Acts chapter 7 verse 51 says that we can become stiff-necked and always resist the Holy Spirit. We can do that, become stiff-necked, stubborn, and resist the Holy Spirit. Perhaps you know the will of the Lord, but the struggle is for whatever reason you're not willing to respond to what his will is for your life. The wisest thing you can do is repent of that unwillingness and surrender for his will for your life. And the reason, of course, very simply, is there are always negative consequences to rejecting the Lord. Notice Jesus predicts that in verse 35. He says, see, as a result of their unwillingness, your house is left to you desolate, 
And assuredly I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Because of their continual rejection of the prophets of God and the person of God and Jesus Christ, that repeated refusal as a result made the nation suffer. Morally and spiritually, Jesus speaks of how a time was coming ahead when their house would be left desolate or abandoned. The rejection had gone too far at this point. The die of God's judgment was now cast. They had run out of time. And probably Jesus here is predicting how in 70 AD, both the city and the temple would be overtaken and destroyed by Titus. Things burnt with fire. And because of their abandonment of the Lord, they became vulnerable to the enemy. And it was the automatic outcome of rejecting God's plan for their life. They only got the consequences of the other option. And Jesus spoke of how this was coming upon them for refusing the Lord. And can I just say again, our refusal and our rejection of the Lord's intentions for our lives will always, please mark my words, our rejection of the Lord's best intentions for all of our lives will always result in personal loss it will always result in regret and missed opportunity and our own heartache afterwards God will simply draw back and let us experience the fruit of our own will and our own ways and trust me we do not want that I've eaten that bad food a few times it's miserable it's miserable Look what Jesus says here. He says, I say you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He quotes from Psalm 118, a messianic psalm. And that psalm Jesus quotes spoke of how Israel, because of their sin and their unbelief, as well as what Jesus is saying here, would now be blinded in part. And they would not see and recognize Jesus for who he was. Because of their continual rejection, their hearts became blinded. And until the time of his return, when he sets up his kingdom, when they then say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, certainly some people stated this verse from Psalm 118 in his triumphal entry, but it was just a partial fulfillment. It was a select few individuals. This prophecy from Psalm 118 will not have its full completion of the time when Jesus comes in his glory and they recognize Jesus as their Messiah for who he really is. Zechariah 12.10 tells us that God's going to pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. And God says, and they will look upon me whom they have pierced. In other words, despite the initial failure of Israel in rejecting God's prophets sent to them and refusing Jesus as their Messiah, the Bible says there is coming a time there's coming a time when Jesus returns the second time in his glory when all Israel, as God's spirit falls upon them, will see Jesus Christ for who he really is as their Messiah that was sent. And the Bible teaches there is a future for Israel. There is coming a time when their Messiah will return again and they will see Jesus for their Savior. Jesus says, you shall not see me, notice, till the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now to me, what a glorious testimony to the grace of God that is. The fact that God in his grace is determined to restore people to their original purpose and their original plans, despite their failures and rejections, how great they be. And you know what? This morning, indeed our failures... Mine and yours included. Indeed, those times in our lives when we're not willing to embrace the will of the Lord, they will lead to, to loss in our lives. They will lead to heartache and cause harm when we reject the will of the Lord. Yet, listen, despite what it's been in the past, that does not mean that the Lord has to forsake his good purposes that he still has for your life. Jesus is still able to accomplish his purpose for you this morning. And our Lord so often extends measures of his abundant grace. Despite our tremendous failures. And we've blown it so many times. And the Bible says where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. And so often the devil just twists the knife in our back and he says, See, that's you're an utter failure. You're a failure. And because you're a failure and you've blown it so many times, there's no way God's best could ever happen in your life. Listen, don't listen to that. Jesus is so gracious. 
And his hard intention so often is to extend more and more grace. And listen, if you need that grace in your life this morning, don't resist it. Respond to it this morning. Don't resist and insult the spirit of God's grace. Humbly respond to it. Act upon it today in faith. This morning, listen, this morning ask Jesus for the grace to begin today to do his will for your life. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Father, thank you for your word, for the truths it conveys to our hearts. And Lord, this morning as we conclude this time in worship responding to you, I pray that your Holy Spirit would just prompt hearts here this morning to, by faith, believe upon and receive your grace. No matter what the failure has been, Lord, that you'd let them know your grace can restore everything despite what it seems maybe they fear they've lost. Encourage the hearts of the saints. And Lord, for those who feel that they could never come to you, I pray that you would encourage them that there's still time and that they'd respond to your spirit drawing them this very day. Before we sing a final song, I want to extend an invitation for you to pray, a sinner's prayer to embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior this morning. Maybe you're backslidden and you need to recommit your life to Jesus Christ and you want to do that right now. Or maybe you've never prayed a prayer of genuine salvation and you're ready. You're ready to believe and to respond and you want this to be your day of salvation. Just pray a simple prayer like this. Be sincere and tell God. Say, Dear God, I know that I am a sinner. I believe Jesus died on that cross for me. I'm sorry for all of my sin against you. Please forgive me, Jesus. Wash me. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Give me the grace to live my life for you. Come into my life and take control, Lord. I believe that you can do that. And I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.